Sometimes, myths that persist in the public consciousness don't really affect our lives a whole lot. You can get warts from toads, uh, bulls hate the color red, MSG is bad for you, Dane Cook is funny. Like, none of these things are true, but believing they are is unlikely to cause harm or ruin Thanksgiving dinner for everybody. Where, by the way, you get really tired after the meal not because of the tryptophan in your turkey, but because you stuck your face beyond what might ordinarily be considered a reasonable amount. Now that said, there are some myths that do cause real-world harm, especially when they're perpetuated by people who we look to as experts in that field. And it's one of those myths that we're going to discuss today. My name is Eric Bowman, I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. For years, most of us in the general public have taken for granted the notion that depression can be caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain, that too little serotonin can cause depression, and that antidepressants can rectify that imbalance. While there are still valid uses for antidepressants, boosting serotonin levels is not one of them. We've believed this for decades, while at the same time, psychiatrists have known for decades that this is not the case. My guest today has been speaking out about this for years and sounding the alarm about the need for government coverage of psychotherapy as a safer and in many cases more effective alternative. I'm Joel Paris. I'm a professor emeritus of psychiatry at McGill University, where I've been for 50 years. And my main interest in research and clinical work is borderline personality disorder but I have also been interested in psychiatry in general, particularly its fads and fallacies and, and, and where maybe it's got a little bit wrong. So I assume that's, I assume that's how I got involved in this interesting question. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I'm fascinated about this as well in places where psychiatry, psychology, uh, all of this has steered us a little bit wrong over the years. And in this particular case, uh, I want to talk about serotonin and chemical imbalances. And this is something that we, and I will say up front, I am not a psychologist. I don't, uh, you know, I'm not a scientist. I am a lay person. And so for many years, I have heard the same thing that everyone else has. Chemical imbalances in the brain are what cause depression and uh, anxiety and other disorders. And that those can sometimes be treated with medication. And it appears as though, for a long time, we've known that this isn't necessarily the case uh, in the way that we think that it is. And I'm hoping you can expand on that a little bit. First of all, depression is not one thing. It's many things. And you have to think of it in a biopsychosocial context, which means there are genetic biological predispositions, there are psychological stressors, and there's a social environment involved. And I think there was a mistake made to call depression one thing. It used to be in earlier versions of the DSM manual, two things, one which was more severe and sometimes psychotic and the other one sort of more what they called kind of the, the ordinary depression, the run of the mill depression, which so many people have. And, uh, and so that's the first thing. The other thing is when you're looking for one cause of a mental disorder, and you're focusing on that as if it was a direct causal relationship, you're going to get into trouble because there are many factors which lead to mental illness. And certainly that's true of depression. And so 
trying to make it simple, I think, is a mistake. But maybe psychiatry is what my fellow psychiatrists, they want to be like other doctors. They want to, uh, to have a simple theory with a simple treatment. And this has kind of been kind of appealing. This, so this is why, in spite of the lack of evidence over the years, as, as nicely summarized in the Moncrief article in Nature, in spite of the lack of evidence for the theory, people have held on to it. A final element is the pharmaceutical industry, which is selling products, which are now used by about 12% of the population is currently on antidepressants for a variety of reasons. Right. And more in women than in men. And many people take them for years, and we don't know if, if that's a problem or not. And so the pharmaceutical industry has made a lot of profits but I think they use the serotonin, the serotonin theory to justify you know, increasing further the amount of prescriptions which are made and patients who see doctors and not just psychiatrists, but also family doctors and other practitioners, and they describe depressive symptoms are very likely to be put on an antidepressant. So the idea that there was one chemical involved was appealing because it seemed to explain why uh, specific serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, which are the, 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 the most important form of antidepressant, it seemed to explain why they might work. First of all, they don't always work. Right. So if you go to effectiveness studies, as opposed to, to randomized clinical trials, you see that maybe 50 to 60% of people do get some response from these drugs when they're, when they're depressed. But a lot of them don't. That's something which people don't know. And they, and, or doctors have been encouraged, particularly by the pharmaceutical industry and also by certain experts, that if the antidepressant doesn't work, give them another one. Right. Two is, you know, two, with a different mechanism, maybe. So patients walk in on two, three, sometimes four or five different medications when I see them for consultation. And it's really not very very rational. It's like people know how to add, but not how to subtract. So, and the thing I think of particular interest to the psychology community is that all this has to be seen in the context of the problem of accessing psychotherapy and understanding that it works at least as well as medication for depression, not for the most severe depressions, but for the, the more common cases of depression, the mild to moderate depressions. Psychotherapy is of many types, most particularly CBT, works just as well. And, and, and some evidence suggests that it may even have a more lasting effect. Now, we, we've been banging the drum on uh, better access and more public funding for psychotherapy for many years uh, at the CPA. And I, I'm thinking, though, part of this problem might be uh, simply a lack of psychiatrists to address the needs of a population that's, you know, more and more depressed over the years, right? And the way that I think about it, I, I read Freakonomics years ago, right? And in Freakonomics, they have a chapter on real estate. And the real estate agents uh, will sell houses cheaper because they can do it quicker. Uh, so if you have a real estate agent, you leave your house on the market an extra week, you're going to make a lot more money. Well, that's good for you, but not necessarily for the agent. And they want to turn it over quickly. Psychiatrists who want to help as many people as possible 
deal with their symptoms, right? Behavioral therapy and psychotherapy is going to take a good long time and you can see fewer patients if that's the route that you end up going, right? Is that part of the problem? Just too many patients for too few psychiatrists who are able to deal with them? If you double the number of psychiatrists tomorrow, I think you'd have exactly the same problem. You know, most don't see psychiatrists. They see their family doctors. A lot of the medical treatment of of, with antidepressants drugs occurs in family practice and not in psychiatry. So it is true that psychiatrists make more money by seeing four patients an hour than one. But the access problem is really a major misunderstanding which affects also government policy. Now, when we got medical insurance in Canada in 1970, it covered everything that psychiatrists and other doctors do. It did not cover psychologists. Why didn't it? Because some of the private insurance schemes do cover psychotherapy by psychologists. Well, they were afraid probably that psychologists would see patients forever if they had insurance. And there were some settings where that happened. And also there was a kind of a prejudice against psychotherapy because there's still this question, how can just talking help from people who don't understand the mechanisms of psychotherapy? Right. But in fact, a lot of evidence when you look at the cost benefit of psychotherapy shows that it actually saves money to have better access to psychotherapy. I think if in 1970, they had insured 20 sessions a year for everybody, which is about the length of therapy, which is effective for most things that it's effective for. If you insured 20 sessions for everybody, the governments would save an enormous amount of money. Why? People would go back to work sooner. They wouldn't be collecting unemployment benefits. Some people might not end up on welfare. They would, they would not be the problem that we see where many patients who are depressed run to doctors thinking there's something physically wrong with them and run through a whole bunch of scans and other tests, which are very expensive and fully paid for by the government. So from the cost-benefit point of view, we need better access to psychotherapy. There have been a number of people talking about this and including the Canadian Psychological Association. And I work in Quebec. At one, at one point, the government said, oh, we're going to come up with something. But what they came up with was an insurance plan that might that resembles what we call employment assistance plans that, that are run by companies where they have insurance for their employees, which means six sessions with a psychologist. And, right. that's, and that's not rational because... The, because six sessions isn't enough, and the, and the empirical evidence doesn't support ensuring that amount. So I think if we have easier access to psychotherapy, psychiatrists aren't going to do it. In fact, they do much less of it than they ever did when I was a student. Most of them are, are running a, a mostly a prescription practice. And, uh, but they could, if, if, if psychotherapy for psychology, with psychologists was insured, they could make the referral and there's a lot more psychologists than there are psychiatrists, and I think it, w- it would make a dent in the problem. I'm not sure that people are more depressed, by the way, than they were 50 years ago, or whether or not it's simply they report more depression because of awareness. Publicly. Right. Yeah. It's not clear there's actually an increase in the rates of, of depression, which or, or not certainly not a large one. I think it was, I think it was eight years ago uh, where we did a study and uh, found that mental illness and depression and the rest of it 
all combined cost the workforce about $33 billion a year and the economy $50 billion a year. So as you said, it does appear to be a cost-saving measure to uh, be able to ensure people uh, to have the proper psychotherapy that they require or behavioral therapy. And I just want to go back to the 70s, right? You said if we had started doing this in 1970 and providing people with 20 sessions a year, uh, that over time it would have obviously saved us a ton of money, a ton of uh, human hours. But I'm wondering about the genesis of this, right? It's, I think it was in the 60s where uh, some studies suggested that serotonin was the reason that people got depressed, uh, that it changed the, the brain's balance. But I, it also seems as though those studies were, I don't know if debunked is the right word, but were questioned and found to be flawed almost immediately after they came out. So I'm wondering what got us from there to where we are today, where it seems like we're still going with a study that didn't last very long. Well, you know, it reminds me of there's a famous medical doctor in the States, and his name is John Ioannidis, and he wrote an article called Why Most Research Findings Are False. And he was referring, <laughs> he was referring to, to medicine in general, but... It's connected, but it's also true in, in um, psychiatry and in psychology, where we have a replication crisis, where, right. where a lot of things. I think I think what happens is often the early studies are encouraging, and then come the debunking by failures of replication, and the failures of replication never never get out there in the media, or are they, they're not even noticed by the uh, mental health professionals because they, they latch on to these simplistic explanations. And they've seen slides, you know, in, in presentations which show little bubbles of serotonin flowing in, in, into the synaptic cleft, you know, and making the patient well again. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like effective marketing. I think we, I would say we've known for 20 years that the theory is not correct. And Moncrief's article in Nature really has gotten public attention for the first time that something is not true because what you read in what you read in the newspaper or in social media tends to be initial studies which may or may not be replicated over time. I teach my students don't believe in any one study, wait for or even two studies, wait for the meta-analysis, wait till there's a lot of data there. Some people have said, well why didn't you tell everybody that this was true? And I think the answer to that is that some patients do benefit from the use of the SSRI antidepressants, particularly the severely ill ones. They really need it. And even if the theory behind why it works is wrong or not supported, we still use these medications because they have a place. Unfortunately, they're given to everybody right. <laughs> who walks in the door. That's the problem. Yeah. And I come at this from from a media background. I, I was in radio for many years and I was thinking about this today just before we spoke. Uh, right. Serotonin is derived from tryptophan. I think anybody who's listening to this, who's heard the word tryptophan before, uh, who's not a scientist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, has probably heard it in conjunction with Thanksgiving and turkey. Right. And this notion that it's the tryptophan in the turkey that makes you really tired after the Thanksgiving meal and <laughs> so on, right? Which has not been true ever. And it's absolutely a myth. But when I was in radio, right, 15 years in radio, every single year, we would have to 
once again, tell everyone that's just not true. The reason you're tired is because you ate a whole lot of food, right? Right. Right. You filled yourself right up and then that made you really sleepy. It has nothing to do with tryptophan, but that myth persists regardless of how many times you tell everybody it's just not true. And I think this might be something along the same lines. Once it's out there, putting the genie back in the bottle is very tough, right? You've hit the nail on the head. It's very hard to disabuse somebody of a, of a conclusion that they have reached. It's hard to change people's minds in general. And there's a whole big literature about that, that and why it's true. We see it in politics, of course, and all the time. Right. And uh, actually, I just came across an article this morning that was published in the Canadian Journal of Behavioral Science. And it was talking about benzodiazepine and cognitive behavioral therapy and how the two interact and how patients who are taking benzodiazepine, which from what I understand is prescribed more often for short-term major depressive symptoms and doesn't last very long. But even the patients and the therapists are confused about how the two interact with one another. Some of the patients say that because they're doing it, they're more able to open up in therapy and they're getting more out of it. Others say that it has a sort of uh, produces a lethargic effect, which makes them question whether they're taking in enough of the information during the therapy. And there seems to, you know, to this day, be a real persistence in, in that confusion. Benzodiazepines are not antidepressants. Okay. They are. They can be used as sleeping pills, which, which, which for which they used a lot. It can be used for anxiety disorders like panic disorder or generalized anxiety disorder. If they're used in depression, it's it's probably because the patient is not sleeping through sleeping through the night. They should be used short term because they're addictive, but um, or at least for some people. The problem is once. And this is another example of the same principle. Once a patient is put on a medication and they get better for some reason, you don't know exactly why, there's a, there's a reluctance to take away the medication is no longer needed. And so patients will, may take benzodiazepines or antidepressants or all kinds of other drugs for, for years and years, and it's not necessary. It is true that there are some studies which show that anti, the, the antidepressants Previously, the tricyclic antidepressants, now the serotonin, SSRI antidepressants, that more patients get better if you offer an antidepressant and psychotherapy. But that doesn't mean that most patients need the antidepressants. I remember when Prozac first came out, and I thought, well, this this stuff sounds great. I should try it. And the patients would come in, I would prescribe it. They come back the next day feeling great, and I'm thinking, wow, this is a miracle. But then it suddenly occurred to me, wait a second, you just spent an hour listening to them and hearing their problems. How do you know they wouldn't have been better just right. from the initial interview? And the Prozac had nothing to do with it. So when you do two things at once, you really don't know which one is working, which is why I generally like to do one thing at a time. I happen to be in an area of subspecialty personality disorders where, where in fact, medication does almost nothing. The patients are all put on medication by doctors anyway, but the evidence for almost any medication is extremely weak, and the evidence for psychotherapy is very strong. So I'm often in the business of taking people off medications they've been taking for years because they don't need them anymore, but I, but I hit a lot of resistance. You know, no doubt. And the latest thing, of course, is everyone's on a stimulants for supposed ADHD, 
which it often they don't have, but because normal people also have a little better concentration if they take these drugs, even if they don't have ADHD, people get attached to these drugs. You know, they're kind of what, what is called cosmetic psychopharmacology. You know, they, right. make, they make you better than well. I feel like I'm constantly struggling as an advocate of psychotherapy because, you know, particularly for the patients, kind of patients that, that I see where they need certain specialized psychotherapy, but they're faced with patients who've been unnecessarily treated for, for quite a long time with antidepressants and other drugs. So this is a struggle. And even, even psychologists will send their patients to psychiatrists if they're not getting better because they say, well, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe this patient needs an antidepressant. And maybe in some cases they do. But I can guarantee you, if a psychologist sends a patient to a psychiatrist asking about medication, the patient will go home with a prescription, no matter what's wrong with them. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure that's the case. And, and specifically when we're talking about SSRIs, antidepressants, uh, you said like for people with very severe depression, they can serve a, a very important function. They can really work. Do we know why? Uh, right? we, don't, we don't know why, and that's true of most things in psychiatry. I mean, some of our most effective treatments, we still don't know how they work. We talk, I mean, antipsychotics for psychosis, well, the mechanisms by which they work, and sometimes dramatic, dramatic. you could give them pain, a couple of days of treatment and the psychosis is gone, and yet we really don't know what's going on in the brain. I mean, there's all kinds of theories. Similarly, for electroconvulsive therapies for depression, which are extremely effective for severe depressions, and we have no idea why that works. It's a bit like, like restarting your computer when, when you had a crash, you know? Right. <laughs> but that's hardly an explanation. So not knowing how things work, I think, again, the serotonin theory was attractive because it made us feel like we're applied scientists. There's a mechanism here, and this is rational. You know, in medicine, I mean, a lot of things you use, you know, like cortisone or for anti-inflammatory drugs for all kinds of conditions. You're not really, really sure what you're, quite what you're doing, but it works, so you do it. Right. Now, I'm wondering if for people who are listening to this right now who have been on antidepressants for a really, really long time and might question whether or not they actually need those antidepressants, uh, what would you suggest that they do? I would imagine that just cutting it off cold turkey is a bad idea, but also, I mean, how do they find out whether or not this really is necessary for them? Well, these guidelines were, were set up several decades ago, but they're not followed. And it, it works it works like this. If you've had one depressive episode and you've recovered and you're wondering whether or not to continue your antidepressant, the answer is you need to be tapered off of it slowly to see what happens. Because you have, and with antidepressants, they have all kinds of effects, withdrawal effects if you stop them too suddenly, like you just said. So you taper them slowly and you have to monitor, but you have to monitor the patient to see if they have a relapse. If they do, they have to go back on the antidepressant. That's, and if that happens more than once in particular, then there may be a reason for long-term antidepressant treatment. But if you only had one episode of a serious depression, there's certainly room for maneuver between you and, and the doctor to see if you really need it. But people are afraid because what if I have a relapse? And I remember what it was like last time and it was terrible and uh, I don't want to take the chance and there are guidelines for doing this, 
you, you need to you need to be observed. Doctors doctors are terribly busy, and uh, they don't they, they don't feel they have the time to have patients come in once every week or two to make sure they're all right. Now, is it the kind of thing that you might be able to observe on your own? Take your own observations, like. You know, when I had a high blood pressure scare for a while, I would go to the shopper's drug mart and take my blood pressure once a week and write it down myself and then bring that to the doctor six months later or something, right? Is there something that people can do on their own? Or do they need a professional to monitor this as they go? Well, I certainly think that people can do some of it on their own. I mean, depression is a subjective experience. It's, there's no machine that will tell you you're too high or too low when it comes to mood. But, you, you know, if you find, you know, that, that your mood is clearly going, going south, that you're not sleeping at night, that you've lost your appetite, you know, there are, in other words, that the classical symptoms of depression are coming back. I think that uh, a lot of people take antidepressants for a long time and they have mild depressions, but they believe the antidepressants are necessary because it's like magic. Every day you do something so it won't happen again. You know, and even if it's not true, you're afraid, you're afraid, you're afraid to take the risk. So, but if people want to get off antidepressants, certainly they can observe themselves or have other members of their family or intimate partners observe them to see, to see if, if, anything hap- if anything happens. Some of the antidepressants, you have to be really careful because they're physical. As I mentioned, there are physical symptoms of withdrawal when you stop. Okay, and so going forward, what can be done? What can we do to sort of, you know, shift diagnoses and treatments in a better direction for, you know, like you said, pharmaceutical companies are pretty heavily invested in, you know, having all these drugs prescribed as often as they are, is that the place to start? Where do we start in trying to shift this conversation in the right direction? Well, there are a couple of things. First of all, uh, I'd like to see something done with the DSM definition of major depression, which is very misleading. It was, it was decided 40 years ago that, that there was only one thing called depression, and it's just a matter of how bad it is. And I think that was a big, big mistake and I have colleagues who have been pushing for the idea that of uh, the heterogeneity of depression, which would help us to focus, to think, not to kind of have a knee-jerk reaction, depression, antidepressant, but think what kind of depression we're looking at. Is it a severe depression? Is it what we call a melancholic depression with all kinds of physical symptoms? you know, and, uh, and associated risks? Or is it just the person is unhappy? Now, another issue is at the other end of the continuum. Some people are unhappy and they have reasons to be unhappy and they, they go to psychotherapy even for that, even though they don't actually have depression. I mean, there's something called persistent depressive disorder in the manual for which people prescribe antidepressants, but they don't work very well because it's really a description of people who are unhappy for many years, and many of them also have personality disorders, by the way. So I think, I think the def- something has to be done about the definition of depression. The second thing is we need to convince governments to ensure psychotherapy. Right. And this is done in Europe a lot. The National Health Service, whatever its limits, started a, uh, in, in the UK, has a program, an excellent program, 
where they offer cognitive behavior therapy to people as part of the, of the health system. And they hired a lot of psychologists over there. It probably is not going to meet the demand, but it's, right. it's, it's a move in the right direction. You go to Scandinavia and Germany and some of the richer countries in Europe where, they could, where they're not worried about, so worried about their budgets. And people want to be in therapy. They could just go there and, and, and insurance will pay. Either, right. government, either government insurance or, as in Germany, kind of a private insurance which is system which is quasi-governmental. So those are the two things that I would think of in order to move forward. Now, you mentioned European countries and the way that they approach this from a governmental level, from a, you know access level. Uh, and I'm thinking about thing that I did back in February, talking to people about different cultures and the way that they approach different mental health issues. And there are different cultures all around the world where the symptoms that we would call depression, they would call something completely different, right? That for them, it isn't the same thing as it is here in sort of a Western-centric medicine perspective. I guess I'm just wondering, is there something to be taken from those cultures where they see this as a different thing with different diagnoses and they, they some cultures of course see some completely different mental health issues that we don't see at all here right well, you're quite right and there's been quite a fair amount of research in transcultural psychiatry about this it's another subject that i'm interested in most countries which are what we call traditional societies which are not westernized they talk about fatigue which is a symptom which can be a symptom of depression you know but they tend to see it like that uh, one of my colleagues, um, is a, who was a transcultural psychiatrist, went to China in the 70s. And he said, it's a funny place, China. They don't have any depression, but they have all this neurasthenia. Neurasthenia <laughs> being a 19th century, that's not in the manual, it's being a 19th century concept, which was used to describe people who were, who were tired all the time. Right. And... And they used to go to kind of medical spas to rest up, get their stuff together. But now if you went to China today, it has westernized a lot. And they also research depression and have more or less the same rates of depression that we, that we would see in Canada and other developed countries. What can we learn from this? I would say we're better off with depression and fatigue uh, because some of the because some of these patients do respond to medical treatment and or psychotherapy. In fact, maybe most of them. And if you just say somebody's tired and should take it easy, you know, maybe they'll get more support from their family if they're seen that way. And sometimes that helps. It doesn't open the door to modern psychological and psychopharmacological treatment. Well, I hope this uh, opens the door to a greater discussion of modern psychopharmacological treatment and psychotherapy and where we go from here. Dr. Paris, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Thank you to Dr. Joel Paris for joining me today on Mindful. This episode was hosted, written, and published by me, Eric Bowman. It was edited and produced by Jamie Montgomery. Our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor. Thanks for tuning in, listening, streaming, downloading, and so on. You can subscribe to Mindful anywhere you get your podcasts.